Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 15, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. As far as the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for the preservation of the history of your people. And we pray that as we study and learn it and remember these things, that you would point us to Jesus, convict us of our sins, that you would grow us in the faith and help us to thank your thoughts after you, to understand your wisdom and your will in the world and in our lives. So Father, guide us now into the study of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, Proverbs 27.2 reads this. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Yet we hear that and we live in a climate where we, we've got this culture of almost endless self-promotion. One is expected to speak glowingly of his own accomplishments and go on and on about his own goals and about his own wishes and dreams and his own accomplishments to such an extent that if he doesn't parade himself around, then you start to think that maybe the guy has a low self-esteem issue. Uh, of course, we feel this compulsion to promote ourselves, but we resent it when other people do it. It's nauseating to listen to somebody else promote themselves. And we want to say, well, don't, don't tell me about what you can do. Show me, show me what you can do, and I'll believe you. David's son Absalom is a poster boy for self-promotion and self-praise. Here in 2 Samuel, we're about to get a little workshop on how to jockey for position, how to build yourself up, and in the process, tear everything else down around you and tear, tear everybody and everything else down. He wants to be king. Absalom wants to be king. And so he starts acting like a king and he starts sowing seeds of discord and doubt in the minds of everyone else about his father. So he builds himself up and in the process, tears his father down. Remember, back a couple of weeks as we are catching up to where we are in this story, Absalom at first was highly offended uh, by not only the fact that his half-brother Amnon abused his sister Tamar, but he was further offended and he was further vexed by the fact that his father David didn't do anything about it. David wrung his hands and he got real angry, but he didn't do anything. So two years later, Absalom invited his half-brother Amnon to a party. He waited until Amnon was drunk and then he sent his servants to kill him. Then Absalom fled from there and he stayed with his Gentile family, his mother's people over in Geshur. He stayed with his Gentile grandparents and family there until Joab, David's general, 
David's nephew, tries to play peacemaker and gets Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. But when Absalom comes back, as we saw last week, David didn't want anything to do with him. He wouldn't even look at his face. It was another two years before David would even grant time to see his son. So all this time, Absalom has been fuming and has been agitating and he's been marinating in this bitterness. And he thinks this whole time that he can do a better job than his father. He thinks his father is old and weak. His father, he thinks, has lost respect in the kingdom. His father's no longer ruling. He's reacting, and there's some truth to that. And Absalom surely isn't ready to concede that young Solomon, his little brother Solomon, is the man for the crown, despite the fact that Nathan, God's prophet, said that Solomon would be the next king. You see, Absalom is not like Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan knew that God's blessing was on David, and Jonathan was willing to step aside so that God's anointed king could have a clear path to the throne. Jonathan could have made things real difficult for David, but Jonathan didn't. He loved David. He loved the Lord. And because David was anointed, Jonathan stepped aside. But that's not what Absalom is like. Absalom can't do that. Absalom is more like Abimelech in the book of Judges. Remember, Abimelech set himself up as a king and killed all of his brothers to get closer to the crown. Well, Absalom has always already proven himself to be uh, one who will kill his brother. So in this phase of 2 Samuel, we see this carefully orchestrated revolution that Absalom is masterminding. And we see it in, in several stages. First, if you want everybody to think of you as a king, then you need to start acting like a king. You need to act like a king like the nations have, like a Gentile king. If you look like a king, then people will start thinking of you as a king and start taking you seriously. So Absalom, when we start, after this had happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. He got a chariot to ride around in, and then he had an entourage of 50 men to run in front of him wherever he went. You think of the way that... You know, when professional boxers come to a ring, they have this whole, you know, crowd of guys, you know, the trainers and the guys holding the boom box and the guys doing, you know, just this whole entourage helping the guy to the ring. Well, that's what Absalom had. He had this 50-man entourage that went with him everywhere. It's kind of a royal guard. Ancient kings would move around with a company of warriors, you know, these real tough guys. You don't want to mess with the guy in the middle of that group, and you got to get through these 50 guys to get to him. He's also gathering horses and chariots, and this is a significant move. Don't, don't uh, pass over this too quickly. And we never read of David collecting chariots and horses because those are always associated with the enemies of Israel. David kept donkeys, right? David rode a donkey. The king, as you know, as we've seen many times, was forbidden from piling up horses and chariots. Not even Saul, not even Saul collected horses and chariots. Remember, Saul's dad kept donkeys. That's the first time we meet Saul is when he's looking for his father's donkeys. Saul acted like Gentile kings in other ways, but Absalom now is overtly publicly, self-consciously taking on the appearance of the kings of the nations. And now David, once again, is going to have to deal with an Israelite going around acting like a Gentile. Just as David had to deal with, with Saul, now he has to deal with his own son doing this. Where did Absalom learn to act this way? Where did he get these ideas? Well, he's been spending all this time with his Gentile grandparents and family. He learns when he's there how heathen kings run things. He talks to his cousins on his mama's side. He talks to his uncles and they say, you do what over there in Jerusalem? 
What? You put up with what? No way. That's not how we do things. Kings get what they want. Kings do what they want. So he learns all these bad habits and they're attractive to him. And Absalom tracks them all back into the kingdom when he comes back. Spending time among the Gentiles is not good training for Israel's prince, evidently. He isn't salt and light out there among the Gentiles. Uh, he is corrupted, rather. So in addition to trying to look like a Gentile king, Absalom is also going to manipulate people into favoring him over his father. He doesn't treat people like subjects. He treats them as brothers, which, which is fine, but, but he's, he's, he's being very obvious in the way that he's doing this. When, they, when people bow down to show their respect to him, he raises them up and kisses them. Don't, no, 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 who are you kneeling? Don't kneel to me. Get up here, get up here. This is, a, this is kind of a common man political technique. We just came out of an election season where we saw this nauseating barrage of ads. And you'll always see the politician who's you know, wearing a John Deere hat and he's uh, visiting the seed store or he's, he's standing out in a field with a piece of straw in his mouth and he's, you know, he's got his shirt sleeves rolled up, right? And he's talking to a farmer and he's got this real furrowed brow. And so you know he really cares about agriculture, right? Because he's got the hat, right? And because he's talking to a farmer and you say, oh, that guy really cares about us. He really cares about the farmer. Here's a guy who knows what we're going through. He's down to earth. That's the image that Absalom is trying to cultivate. I'm down here where you are. I'm not with the king up in the palace. But of course, as soon as Absalom wins support, up there in the palace, away from the hayseeds and away from the farmers and the rubes is where he wants to be. He doesn't want anything to do with them once he's promoted. Uh, but he's got to do this now to get there. Now, he also undermines his father's authority through dishonesty and duplicity. He gets up early every morning. This is real, this is real subtle, it's real conniving. He gets up every morning and he hangs around the city gates so that when somebody comes to bring a problem to the king, a lawsuit, a case to be judged, he gets them, he, he, he hones in on them and he, he strikes up a conversation. Say, fella, where are you from? And the person says, well, I'm from such and such a city in Israel. Well, boy, I've been there before. That's a nice town. You know, where'd you go to high school? And he strikes up this real neighborly conversation with him. And then why are you here? And the person presents their case. And he says, wow, you, you've got an incredible case there. You have been so abused. You have been so offended. You really, you really have a good case. Whoever comes, he always takes their side. So, so he's looking and listening with this, you know, real concerned expression. He, he, he's shaking his head in unbelief. And he says, and this is what he says in the scriptures. He says, your case is good and right. Isn't that something? Everybody who comes to him, their case is good and right. Uh, but he interjects, uh, it's too bad you don't have anybody to listen to you. You're not going to get justice here. If you go up to that uh, house where the king is and you go into his court, you're not going to get justice you are not going to get a hearing. Now, I tell you what, if I were king, you would get to see me and you would get justice, but, but you're not going to get it up there. You see, dear brother, we have such a mess on our hands right now. Now, is that true? Is it true that you can't get justice, that you can't hear uh, and get a hearing in front of the king? Didn't we just see an old woman from Tekoa in the very last chapter? Now, this was all a setup, right? But, but Joab got this old woman in front of the king to, and, and she wasn't even being... Uh, uh, truthful with what she was presenting, but the king has time for people. We've seen that, but Absalom is down there at the city gate, cutting them off before they ever get in. 
And he says, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or case would come to see me, then I would give him justice. My dad's not going to give you justice. My dad's not going to listen to you. He's not going to hear your case. But if I were king, you would get justice. Well, you see here, Absalom, he doesn't have to make any hard judgments. He doesn't have to make any unpopular judgments. All he has to do is suggest that he would do a better job. You know, he doesn't actually have to do a better job, right? He just has to, to, to suggest that he could do a better job. Uh, that's, he just implies it. I just wish we had a king who cares. What a weasel. But it works. Absalom steals the hearts of the men of Israel. He captures their hearts and their minds. And the implication is that some commentators point this out. There's already this rift between northern and southern Israel. When David was in Hebron, remember, Ishbosheth was crowned king over the northern tribes for just a short period of time uh, before David was eventually crowned king over all of Israel. So that perhaps what we're hearing here is that Absalom was picking out men from Israel, that is, men from the northern tribes, that he's weeding them out. And when he asks, where are you from? If they're from a city in Judah, he says, ah, go on, go ahead. But if they're from Ephraim, or if they're from uh, uh, Zebulun, if they're from another tribe, he says, come aside, come over here. So that he's being real surgical in the way that he's pulling them aside and turning the hearts of northern Israel, who's already been, they've already had a history here of, of uh, offense against David, uh, of separation from David, so that he's pulling them aside and trying to work this out. Um, and he's weeding, weeding out the northern tribes. But there's... There's a significant lesson in here. Always be suspicious of someone who takes a sudden interest in you. Always be suspicious of someone who takes this deep concern all out of nowhere. All of a sudden, they're really interested in you. You, you, you stop and you step back when they do that and you say, okay, what, what game are you playing? I'm not trying to make you cynical or, or introduce thoughts into your head that might not otherwise be there, but you have snakes like Absalom who do this very thing, who try to weed you out and pull you aside and try to speak words of conspiracy into your ears and try to, try to make you disgruntled when you, when you weren't gruntled. Is that? It's like disgruntled. You weren't gruntled, but now you're disgruntled. Maybe you were gruntled. I don't know how that works. I'm going to keep moving. To phase two of his plan, he goes to his father and he feigns some need to keep his religious duties. Now, this is the first time we read about words between Absalom and David since before Amnon was killed. This is the first time they interact in about 11 years. The last chapter ended with a kiss, but there was no conversation. Verse seven. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to Yahweh. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If Yahweh indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve Yahweh. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, if, uh, and I was reading the King James Version that says this takes place after 40 years. If we go with that and we say 40 years, 40 years from what? Is this 40 years from when David was crowned king over all Israel? That means David is now 70. That also means that Absalom is 40. And this would be David's last year of reigning. And, and we've got a lot more story to go if David is 70 and all of this fits in the last year. It might, it, it might be that, uh, but 
there may be another way to look at this. If you have an ESV, and maybe some of your Bibles have a little footnote that's, that lists all the ancient texts that say four years. Now, this is one of those handful of places in the Bible where we have some ancient texts that vary a little bit. The good news is that, that whenever there's a variance on these texts, it's never on anything really uh, critical major points of doctrine. It's relatively minor things like numbers and, and dates. Um, and so whenever I bring something like this up, I don't ever want to undermine your faith in the scripture. We've, maybe we'll find a manuscript you know, in a thousand years that helps us and pulls it all together. But it seems to make sense, it's probably four years. It's four years after uh, Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, comes back from Gesher. And that's, that's how the, a lot of the ancient texts have four here rather than 40, as in most of our, our um, uh, English Bibles. But if we want to go with four and the testimony of the ancient scripts, um, in, in verse 7, um, Absalom now makes a very pious request of his father. He says, I made a vow when I was in, in Geshur, and, and I need to go pay this vow. I need to go down to Hebron. And his father gives him permission to go, and, and, and he says, go in peace. Those are David's last words to his son. David's not going to talk to Absalom again. Go in peace. But peace is the last thing that Absalom is interested in. Absalom is going away to plot revolution and patricide and regicide, going down to do it in Hebron where his father was anointed king. Verse 10, Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem. And they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahitophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. This is in line with that false Samson narrative that I pointed to last week. Absalom is a hairy man. He has lots of hair like Samson did, but he's a false Nazarite. If you took a Nazarite vow to go fight a holy war for God and to abstain from wine and from the fruit of the vine and, and, uh, and focusing on your war uh, that, that God had commissioned you to, at the end of that period, at the end of your vow, you pay your vow, you make a sacrifice, you cut off your hair. And that's the ruse that Absalom is, um, is acting under. Now, he goes down to Hebron in Judah, a sanctuary city, a Levitical city, under the guise of paying a vow, but it's all a plot. He takes with him 200 men for, from Jerusalem who don't know anything about what's going on. They're going to be effectively hostages because they don't know anything about the conspiracy. And if Absalom doesn't get his way, the implication is he's going to start killing these men. Now, the northern tribes have been poisoned. A Levitical city in Judah is now about to be taken hostage so that when things come to a head, David's going to understand, I can't go north because of all the bad blood there. And now I can't go down to Judah because Judah is against me as well. There's no place for David to run now when all of this comes to a head. There's no place for him to go except out to the wilderness. And that's exactly where David will go. Absalom sends spies throughout the land to raise support. And they're going to agitate people in favor of Absalom. And the effect is going to be these little fires, these little flares of distrust and unrest all over the land. It's going to look to David like the whole land is turned toward him. I'm sorry, the whole land is turned against him and toward Absalom. Of course, sending out the spies throughout all the land uh, reminds us of the original conquest of the land 
both Moses sent spies and Joshua sent spies before conquering Canaan. Absalom is keeping up this business of running this false parody of Israel's story every step along the way. One other uh, ally that, that Absalom has is Ahitophel, the Gilanite, or the Gilanite. Remember, he was one of David's closest advisors. He was also Bathsheba's grandfather. And he may be still uh, tore up about the way that uh, David destroyed his granddaughter's uh, marriage to Uriah. At any rate, he may just be a shrewd politician, but he has gone over to be with Absalom. Now in Hebron, where Absalom is, supporters are flooding in and his force is growing every day. Absalom is offering sacrifices. He's appearing to be a true Israelite, but he's counting down the days until he's strong enough to invade Jerusalem and defeat his father. Thankfully, David hears about all of this first. Verse 13, now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my Lord, the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left 10 women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. As David the king leaves Jerusalem, now symbolically Israel is going back into a period of exile for a time. He and his party travel east toward the Mount of Olives and over uh, and toward the Jordan River. Eastward movement in the Old Testament is always movement away from the presence of God. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden to the east. Judah is later going to be driven away from the land out east into Babylon. So the Lord is now using a usurper to drive David out of the sanctuary, out of the land, eastward into exile. And to give you a little bit of this geography so you can picture what's happening, Jerusalem is a city on a mountain and outside the city is a valley separating Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And through that valley runs the brook Kidron that's referred to many times in the scriptures. The Kidron River is where all the waste and the refuse from Jerusalem was cast. And later when the temple is built, it's that same valley where all of the offscourings and the, and the carcasses and, and the bones and all the refuse from the temple is dumped out there. And when the rains came, that valley would flood and it wash, would wash all the refuse and all the corruption out of the land. Well, that valley later on goes by another name, Gehenna, uh, which becomes another word for hell. So this valley is the place of corruption, the place outside the city where all the refuse goes. It's the garbage dump, the carcasses, wild dogs, unclean things, death is out there. So David leaves Jerusalem. And if you follow his path, he's leaving Jerusalem. He's going through Gehenna, figuratively going through hell. And then he ascends the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going to do the same thing later. When Jesus carries the cross, he's going to go out of the city the same direction. So you get a sense of what's happening here. To save the city, David takes shame and exile onto himself. In order to save the people, David takes the exile. Well, he brings out with him his whole household and all of his closest guardians. The Carathites, who we've already met, those are his guards. The Pelathites, those are his couriers and runners. The Gittites, all Philistines, a small expert fighting force of 600 men 
from Philistia that had been with him since his days of fighting uh, with the Philistines and, and hiding out in Gath when he was running from Saul. So David has kept this small fighting force. You don't keep a large standing army, but you're allowed to have a small strike force to respond to threats quickly while you muster your militia. Individual Gittite men, men from Gath, would have came and left at different times. They would have joined and left this party, but there are always 600 men from Goliath's hometown who were with David this whole time. And all David leaves behind in Jerusalem are these few concubines to keep the house, 10 women. They're not there to guard it. They're certainly in a vulnerable position, but it shows David does not leave any fighting men back at the house to fight to the death over the palace. If Absalom comes up looking for a fight, and if he's looking to fight his way to the throne, all that's gonna be standing in his way are 10 housekeepers. That's all that's left. Verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you only came yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, as Yahweh lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over and all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. As his supporters file past, David stops this one man from Gath, this one Gittite, Ittai. By the way, if you're keeping a baby name book, there's another one to add to it. I don't hear too many uh, of this guy around, so you can name one that. Because uh, he's an honorable man. David says, why are you going with us? Go back and stay with the king. What? The king's out here. No, David says, go back and stay with the king. It's already a foregone conclusion that Absalom is going to take the throne. You don't need to be out here with your little ones, with your family wandering around with us. Go back and the Lord will deal kindly with you. Uh, David might have been testing him a little bit. David is the king. He refers to Absalom as the king, perhaps to see if, if this man agrees with that. Or maybe he's just releasing him from his vow and saying, go serve the new regime and enjoy a normal life. Nevertheless, this man, Ittai, doesn't want to hear it. He makes a vow by the life of Yahweh and the life of David. He says, wherever the king is, there will I be. I'm a Philistine from the same town as Goliath, but is making a, uh, an oath to David. He, he's this oasis of fidelity. While there's all this treason going on around David, this man is faithful to David. David's own son is conspiring against him, while the stranger, a Gentile, was risking everything to protect David. Well, now they're leaving out, going out across the river. It's like they're undoing the conquest of the land. They're, they're, they're taking down the kingdom on the way out. Verse 24, there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. 
Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. The priests bring out the ark and they assume if David's leaving, the ark needs to come with us. But they set it down while all the people cross over the river going out of the out of the city of Jerusalem. It's like a reversal of the Jordan River crossing. They set down the ark, all the people cross over, but we're not going into the land, we're coming out of it. The priesthood expects that they're gonna keep the ark out there with David wherever he goes, but David says, no, we're not doing this. We're not turning the ark into a lucky charm. We're not turning it into this, this, you know, this good luck talisman. Uh, I, I remember what happened the last time people treated the ark that way. So you need to take it back into town and you need to set it down where it was. And if God wants me back in town, he's going to make a way for that to happen. But if he doesn't, well, then what happens happens. But he sends the priesthood back into town. Verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went up. And he had his head covered, and he went barefoot. See, he's, everything is death. He's covered his head as if he's under the ground. He's going barefoot. Um, and he's weeping as he goes up. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Yahweh, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, and then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. David knows he's been betrayed. He weeps up the Mount of Olives like another king we know who goes weeping on the Mount of Olives. He finds out his trusted counselor Ahithophel is among the conspirators, and he prays for the Lord to turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He's, uh, uh, he knows that Ahithophel is a shrewd counselor, but he says, Lord, make him speak foolishness, speak nonsense to Absalom and become a stumbling block to him. Just as soon as David prays this, he finds another ally, another old friend, Hushai, a friend of David who's been mourning these events. Hushai is an answer to David's prayer. So he sends him back in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem to be a double agent. He says, go get close, go serve Absalom and work to defeat the council of Ahithophel. You have other allies, the priests are there, they're on my side. Whatever you find out, tell the priests. They will tell their sons and their sons will come and tell me. So David sets up this spy network and the chance to trip up Absalom, Absalom's plans presents itself as soon as he prays for it. He asks for this and the Lord sets this up. The last words of verse 37 are, ominous and frightening. Absalom came into Jerusalem and this is not going to end well as you all know. So why, and quickly here, I understand that we're, uh, we, we've had a lot going on today and we're, we're a little bit going a little bit longer than I normally go on the clock, but quickly to try to summarize this, why does David so quickly decide to leave the city? Why does he do this rather than stay and fight? 
He may have believed the propaganda that Absalom really did have substantial support all over the kingdom. And he may have thought, the people don't want me anymore. So by getting out of the way before Absalom comes to town, he avoids a direct confrontation. The way he always, he always did this with Saul, right? He never wanted to, to directly fight Saul. He wanted to defer to Saul and be patient and let the Lord sort things out a different way. He might have also thought that it was better for Absalom to move into the city peacefully rather than forcing the city to endure a siege. David was in danger of losing his position out here, even in danger of losing his life out here in the wilderness, but he willingly sacrifices himself to save the city. Now, David is acting in a way that we haven't seen him act since his fall with, with Bathsheba. Back then, he was plotting against Uriah. He was willing that other people would die to cover for his own sin. Now, threatened by Absalom, he's willing to be the one to die to save the city. David would rather take the shame and spare the city. Now we see a wise, mature David who's showing us Jesus once again. You see, this is godly. This is the kind of thing God does. God takes shame upon himself and especially in the form of Jesus, God takes shame upon himself that should be applied to his people. Back with Eli and his sons, when they lost the ark, Israel should have been exiled, but instead God takes on the shame. His presence is exiled with the ark and he goes into captivity. God's presence goes into captivity with the ark under the Philistines and he comes out again victorious. And of course, the fullness of all this is in Jesus. Jerusalem should have been destroyed for the way she mistreated the prophets. The people should have been destroyed, but Jesus takes the shame on himself. Jesus absorbs it. He nails it to the cross. He kills it and he overcomes it by the power of the resurrection. He comes back victorious. And that's what a real king does. That's why Absalom's not a real king. Not in the biblical sense. And his rule, Absalom's rule, is not going to last. God's not going to bless it. Absalom does not point us to Jesus. Absalom points us to Satan. And Satan is always looking at God, thinking he could do a better job. The satanic impulse is to not be thankful for the king that is put over you, but to work to undermine his rule and subvert his authority and usurp his crown. Ultimately, that's what every one of us do every time we sin. Every sin is rebellion. Every sin is usurpation. Every sin is us saying, Jesus, I don't want you on the throne. I want me on the throne. I don't like your rule. I don't like the way you reign over me. I don't like the demands and the requirements and the obligations you put on my life. I want to be king. That's where I belong. I want the crown. And that's the impulse that is driving Absalom. It is a satanic impulse. We get it. We understand that completely because we're in that position every day. It's real hard not to be in control and not want to be in control. When we're not in charge, when we're put in a position to submit to someone else, our compulsion is always to think that we could do a better job, to convince ourselves that the reason we can't submit is because the person who God put in charge just isn't very good at it. We could do a really better job than they could. We understand Absalom inside and out. We know what that's like. What's confusing to us is what David does. From the other side, he would rather take on exile. He would rather take on banishment, shame. He'd rather do that than to tear apart the kingdom. 
David is submitting to his wicked son for the good of the kingdom and waiting for God to work things out. Again, David is a lot like Jesus in that. How many times was Jesus in a position where obedience to his father required him to submit to someone who wasn't doing as good a job as he would have done? Let me, let me try to uh, abbreviate that. How many times was Jesus in a position to submit to someone and submitted to them who was doing a worse job than he would have done? How about every second of every minute of every day of his life? Jesus grew up going to a synagogue. And from the time Jesus was 12, he could have done a better job teaching and leading worship than anybody else. And yet it pleased God for Jesus to sit down and be quiet and sit on the chair and listen until he's 30 years old. And only then does he begin to teach. Jesus' whole life, he was living in a land oppressed by Roman rule. You don't think Jesus would have been a better Caesar than Caesar? Like an 18-year-old Jesus would be a better Caesar than Caesar, right? And after Jesus is arrested, he stands before Annas and, and Caiaphas, the priests. Jesus was the most holy, righteous, upright priest in that room. Jesus was the most obedient Jew, most faithful to the will of the Father. And yet he's silent and he submits to the accusations of Annas and Caiaphas. He goes to Pilate. Jesus would have been a way better governor than Pilate. He goes to Herod. Jesus would have been infinitely a more respectable and kingly and just man than Herod was. But he submits. Jesus submitted to these horribly wicked, inept, unjust, cruel men his whole life. And he submits all the way to the cross. At which point he becomes the high priest. At which point he becomes the governor and king of the whole world. But it only comes by the way of shame and exile and death. It only comes by the way of submission and obedience. His promotion only comes by the way of the cross, through the valley of Gehenna, weeping up the Mount of Olives. It comes through death and resurrection. And it's only after his death and resurrection that he is exalted above the earth and God gives him a name above every name. The father promotes him. Jesus didn't have to pull an Absalom. Satan even offered him that option, didn't he? Satan offered him the quick route and he didn't take it. So the fact is, you and me, you especially, you may very well, you might be smarter, more capable, more articulate, more discerning and more wise than someone you are called to follow, right? You, you can nod and nod her head. Yeah, I'm probably smarter, more capable, more articulate than somebody I'm called to follow. That's a fact. There's another fact. The fact is also you have Satan whispering in your ear, tempting you to think that you are smarter and more qualified than you actually are. God requires his people to submit patiently and follow those he has ordained to authority. All of us submit to someone. All of us are under authority. And so if Jesus can submit to Herod and Jesus can submit to Pilate and Caesar and Caiaphas, you can submit to the authority God has placed over you to do it faithfully, to persevere and to be patient and wait for God to promote you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to continue to grow in us that same spirit which was in our Savior, Jesus. That spirit of humility, that spirit of obedience, that spirit of faithfulness and desiring nothing more than to please you as his Father. 
So, Father, give us your Holy Spirit so that we can be more and more like Jesus. And may we remember and think clearly that, that when we rebel against you, we're, in fact, we're doing that. Give us that, that mental image that we are taking your son Jesus off his throne and we're climbing up there ourselves to act as king over our own lives. Father, correct us and remind us of this. It's in Jesus' name that we ask all these things. Amen.